0: Please go
1: ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Update on Glioblastoma in Adults. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as many other brain tumor organizations. And we're really delighted to have all of you on the call today. Um, we have on the call today over 283 participants. You come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Argentina, Canada, United Kingdom, and Venezuela, so it's a bit of a global call as well. Today's program is supported by AbbVie, NovoCure, and Bristol-Myers Squibb, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers in our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Bruce. Dr. Bruce is the Edgar M. Housepian Professor of Neurological Surgery. He's Vice Chairman of Academic Affairs, New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center, Director of Bartoli Brain Tumor Research Laboratory, and Co-Director of Brain Tumor Center. Um, And Dr. Bruce will be addressing an overview of glioblastoma in adults, current standard of care, new treatment approaches, and the role of immunotherapy, um, as well as questions to ask your healthcare team. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bruce.
2: Thank you, Carolyn. Uh, It is a pleasure to be here today on behalf of Cancer Care. I have been associated with this terrific organization for many years and have been able to see firsthand how they provide such wonderful service for many patients and their families. Those of you who are suffering from brain tumors, they are a great source of education and support. I want to start off by just saying this is an exciting time to be in the brain tumor field as there are many new advances in the treatment and diagnosis of glioblastoma. In fact, there are more scientists working on brain tumors now than at any time in our history. Uh, Glioblastomas are what is known as a primary brain tumor. That is, they begin in the brain and they form from within the brain. This is distinct from metastatic brain tumors, which are tumors that have spread from elsewhere into the body elsewhere from the body into the brain, such as breast cancer or colon cancer. Now, glioblastomas are malignant brain tumors and, in fact, are the most common type of brain tumor. They can spread to other parts of the brain or spinal cord, but rarely do they spread to other parts of the body. They are invasive tumors, so most of the treatment is designed to control the tumor at the location in the brain where it actually begins. Although there are researchers who are trying to determine what causes brain tumors, at this point no one truly knows. Uh, It is clear that nothing you did caused your brain tumor and there was nothing you could have done to prevent it. Glioblastomas are diagnosed when patients develop any of a number of symptoms. Some general signs of brain tumors include headaches or seizures, weakness, problems, personality changes, nausea, and depending on where the tumor is located in the brain, one can have very specific symptoms such as speech difficulties or confusion about the right or left side of the body, balance problems, problems with fine motor functions such as writing or buttoning your shirt, uh, problems understanding words, difficulty walking, Any of a number of these symptoms could lead your doctor to suspect a brain tumor. And once there is that suspicion, the diagnosis is usually made with an MRI scan. Now, if we look at the current standard of care, the current standard of care relies on surgery followed by six weeks of radiation and then chemotherapy with temozolomide, also known as temodar. In the treatment of glioblastoma, the goal of surgery is to try and remove as much tumor as possible. Depending on where the tumor is located, a surgeon may be able to remove most of it or only a small portion of it. In some cases, only a biopsy may be possible. The problem with these tumors is that they invade into the normal brain, so it's not possible to completely remove them. There are, however, a variety of techniques and tools that make surgery safer than ever. Now, surgery accomplishes two goals. One is to remove some of the mass effect on the brain that is causing problems, and the other is to provide tissue to give to the pathologist so that he or she can make the diagnosis. Pathologists now have very sophisticated methods of analyzing specialized molecular characteristics of the tumor which can give them an idea about the prognosis and possibly uh, treatment. You may be familiar with some of these terms, uh, such as methylation status or IDH mutation. Those are some of the things that are uh, being looked at to provide some kind of prognostic significance. Now, once the surgery is complete and the patient has recovered, he or she will undergo 30 treatments of radiation therapy. This is generally given Monday through Friday for six weeks. It's generally painless, but some of the side effects can include hair loss or tiredness or skin irritation. Now, radiation works by damaging the, the DNA in the tumor cells that cause the cells to grow. The amount of radiation given is designed to have the maximal effect on killing the tumor cells while avoiding causing damage to normal brain tissue. Chemotherapy is generally given along with the radiation, and the standard chemotherapy drug is uh, called temozolomide. And this drug is known to be very effective at slowing down tumor growth. It's sometimes given during the radiation and sometimes given after. In any event, it is effective in any of the manners that it is given. Now, I want to talk a little bit about new treatment approaches. As I mentioned earlier, there has never been a better time for brain tumor research. A variety of new treatments are being developed. The ones that people are most familiar with are different types of chemotherapy and the very promising area of immunotherapy. Now, there are many new drugs being developed all the time that are designed to target the growth of brain tumors. Some of the novel treatment approaches include ways to change the chemotherapy so that it gets into the brain uh, more easily. Uh, Many of these drugs are designed to have less side effects and to be more effective at killing tumor cells. And with the advances these days, some basic science, particularly in the area of molecular biology, scientists have been able to determine very detailed molecular and genetic analysis of individual tumors. And this has led to a lot of excitement into what is being called personalized therapy. What this means is that scientists can analyze a given tumor and determine what parts of the tumor that are causing the growth and are different from other people's tumors. And with that in mind, it may be possible to develop special drugs that target these individual problems and a given person's tumor. So, Ideally, it's individualized based on the changes in that person's tumor. Now This work is very preliminary and has not been developed to the point that it can be mass produced for every individual, but that is hopefully something on the horizon. Uh, other drugs that are out there are designed to affect blood vessels in the brain. You may have heard of Avastin or other drugs that block the invasion of the tumor into the brain. Additionally, there are some mo- new methods of drug delivery that are being tested, including something called convection-enhanced delivery, where very high doses of drugs are pumped directly into the tumor and the surrounding brain tissue, they're, therefore avoiding all of the normal side effects that you get when you give the, uh, a drug intravenously or in the pill form. Now, finally, there are some developments in everything from gene therapy and the use of viruses to attack certain parts of the tumor. These treatments are part of the trend known as biological therapies, where specialized viruses or bacteria and products from them can be used to kill cancer cells. These sophisticated treatments have been worked out in research laboratories for many years and are just getting into the clinic now. They are holding out a lot of hope because they represent entirely new approaches to treatment. Now, one of the very promising areas for brain tumors is the field of immunotherapy. And these are treatments that use vaccines and other strategies to help the body's own immune system to eliminate and eradicate the tumor. The immune system in human beings is really quite remarkable. It's what allows you to get rid of viruses and bacteria that cause the flu and other types of infection. And basically, the immune system recognizes viruses and bacteria as sort of foreign invaders, which are then destroyed by the immune cells in the body, just like you see in the, the, the old Pac-Man video games. Interestingly, the immune system also recognizes tumor cells like glioblastoma as a foreign invader and responds by stimulating an immune response. Now, Unfortunately, the tumor cells can grow faster than they destroy them, so much of the research now is designing new vaccines or drugs that can boost your immune system's response. And while much of the immunotherapy work is still at a very early stage, these results are very provocative and promising, and the most promising areas include the use of vaccines made from parts of the tumor itself or the harvesting and expanding of powerful immune cells such as two cells or dendritic cells that can directly attack the tumor. Additionally, there are a number of very promising drugs involving immunotherapy and those drugs that boost the immune system. You may have heard something called checkpoint inhibitors, which are among the most promising of these types of immune drugs that are being tested, and uh, drugs that modify or change the immune system are being used in combination with other types of immunotherapy, such as vaccines, but also with other types of uh, of chemotherapy. Now, I want to sort of wind up by telling a little bit about some key questions to ask your healthcare team. Um, It's important to be able to communicate with your healthcare team. Uh, First of all, it's important to seek reputable specialists. Uh, It's helpful to have people who are specialists specifically in brain tumors and it is easier than ever to find these people with the use of the internet and also by working with support groups and groups like cancer care this can be easily accomplished. Some questions to ask when you see your doctor, um, sort of a fundamental question is, what options do I have for treatment? Um, What are the risks and most common side effects of these treatments? Should I have a second opinion? Should I I go see somebody else and, and get another opinion? And if a decision is made for treatment, do I need to start the treatment right away? And Answering all these questions is important to to understand what's the most effective way to communicate with you and your team, and, and you should talk to your doctor about how best to get questions answered and how best to to reach him or her or members of, of their uh, healthcare team. I think it's important to have some control over your lifestyle, given the inconveniences of seeing doctors and getting tests and treatment. Keeping a notebook or using your smartphone to jot down notes and reminders will help to make sure that you're not overwhelmed dealing with your condition. And this uh, way, when you see your doctor, you can make sure that your questions are answered. You can make sure your instructions are understood. You may also want to make sure that your other healthcare care professionals, such as your primary care doctor, are kept informed so they can coordinate your overall care. Uh, finally, it's, it's important to keep an honest dialogue with your family so that they understand what you're going through and can help you make decisions. I, I would also add, I would be very skeptical of anecdotes, no matter how well-meaning they are. There are no two patients who are exactly alike, and I would be careful about trying to apply something you've heard about in another patient to your specific case. Um, it may use, be useful to have second opinions. Having other options can uh, and uh, opinions can help refine and formulate your questions, and it's important to work with your healthcare team, your friends, and family so you can maintain the highest quality of life possible. This is very doable. Just because you have a brain tumor and no one's saying that you cannot visit a mall or enjoy your birthday party or have a nice meal or see a good movie, it's important to continue to live your life to the best degree possible despite your diagnosis or the side effects that you may be suffering. This, this is by far the best way to cope with your tumor. All right, I'm going to stop here and turn the program over to our next speaker.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Dr. Bruce. That was really wonderful and just a, a, a very comprehensive way to, to start the call and, and very um, setting the stage for the entire call. So thank you. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Eric Wong. Dr. Wong is Associate Professor, Harvard Medical School, Director of the Neuro-Oncology Unit, Co-Director, Brain Tumor Center, Department of Neurology, at the Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And Dr. Wong is going to be addressing electric field treatments, clinical trials, how research contributes to treatment options, managing symptoms and treatment side effects, the role of rehabilitation medicine, and quality of life concerns. It's really now my great pleasure to join us, Bernal Omer, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong.
3: Well, Carolyn, thank you very much for including me here, and uh, everyone. Um, I am very pleased to uh, have this opportunity to talk to you about um, a number of topics here like uh, tumor treating fields. So I'm going to talk about tumor treating fields first. um, And this is a uh, novel treatment that is uh, FDA approved back in uh, 2015. And this is um, applied to patients uh, after the initial radiation in combination with temozolomide. And this is a device that emits alternating electric fields into the brain, and these fields uh, actually disrupt the tumor cells as they try to divide. And it has been shown to have efficacy against uh, uh, newly diagnosed glioblastoma as well as uh, recurrent glioblastoma. Now, I just want to mention that uh, from time to time, there are uh, additional uh, new treatments that are coming out. and in 2019, uh, there may be a new treatment called uh, Depatux or ABT-414 uh, that is uh, that may go for uh, Food and Drug Administration review. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because you, and I'm referring to patients and their family members, are very important in the approval process by the Food and Drug Administration as well as Medicare. And actually, these patients, work for you, and they want to hear from you. So, for example, back in 2011, I participated in a uh, FDA panel meeting in Maryland, in Bethesda, Maryland, and actually there were uh, patients uh, and their families uh, who were given time to present their story. Likewise, when Medicare decides whether or not to cover a treatment, there is an open public forum. And that patients uh, can tell their story. So this is very, very important uh, for you to participate in this process. Now, I, w- I want to touch on a little bit about clinical trials. Um, a lot of, uh, uh, at least a lot of my patients, as well as uh, patients who I communicate uh, by email, um, have a lot of questions about clinical trials. Uh, there's a website called www. Uh, clinicaltrial.gov, that patients can go in uh, uh, to get information about clinical trials. And this is a government uh, website that requires all clinical trials to be registered there. Now, clinical trials come in three major phases, phase one, phase two, and phase three. Now, whenever there's a new therapy that comes out, it goes into phase one testing. And the purpose of phase one testing is to test whether or not the treatment is safe, and what is, and if there are toxicities, what are the extent of toxicity? Now, if it is deemed safe, it goes into a phase two uh, uh, testing, and in a phase two testing, it, the purpose of it is just to get a rough idea of how well the treatment works, and this is usually done in a small number of patients uh, in about 20 to 30 patients, and um, just to get an aggregate data-like response, uh, the progression-free survival and the overall survival, what is this like compared to historical data? If it looks promising, it will go into a definitive phase called a phase-free clinical trial. Now, in phase three clinical trial, they are typically have two arms, and patients are randomized to be in in either arm. Um and and sometimes it is double blind. The patient does not know whether or not they get the experimental treatment and also the treating doctor does not know whether or not he or she gets the um the uh experimental treatment. And um and if the analysis uh comes out favorable to the experimental treatment then uh it goes for um F D A approval and a phase three... Clinical trial is usually involved multiple sites in the United States uh, and it can involve multiple countries in Canada, in Europe, as well as in East Asia. Now, lastly, I just want to say a few things about uh, some of the treatment uh, medications that uh, patients may, may need to be aware of about potential side effects. There's a medication that uh, glioblastoma patients uh, typically use is called Um and this is a medication that works very well in controlling brain swelling. Um, however, uh, when patients take it for a prolonged pre- period of time, it may trigger other uh, off-target type of side effects such as triggering diabetes, it may lower the patient's immune system. Uh, it may impair wound healing. And if patients are on immune therapy, uh, it may interfere with uh, the efficacy of immune therapies or vaccines. So it is very, very important for patients to discuss this issue with the healthcare care team. Uh, the patient should not stop taking it uh, himself or herself. The patient should talk to their doctors about uh, the dose and also when to take it. And, um, and uh, it, is, uh, uh, it is also important to keep uh, the dose of desimethasone to a minimum. Now, with that, I will close, and I would be happy to answer any questions that you may have.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wong. That was really excellent as well. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Mr. Andrew Chessler. Mr. Chessler is an oncology social worker, and he is our Men's Cancer Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. And Mr. Chessler is going to be addressing Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Chesler.
4: Thank you, Carolyn. It's a uh, pleasure to be part of this call today. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start by speaking about uh, the importance of creating a support network um, when you're diagnosed with uh glioblastoma, a brain tumor of any kind, any type of cancer really, and how cancer care can be a part of that network. There are several ways um, we can help. Um, cancer care is a national non-pro- nonprofit organization that provides uh, free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. So cancer care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources, how to navigate the healthcare system practical help and and some limited financial assistance in many cases all our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers and all cancer care services are completely free of charge so oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends and we are experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, the physical, the financial challenges that can arise after a diagnosis. Adjusting to and dealing with a cancer diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Can't emphasize enough that asking for help, whether that's by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling, is a sign of strength. Cancer care offers uh, face-to-face groups in our local offices in the New York area but also telephone and online groups nationally. And these groups offer a unique opportunity to connect with other people impacted by uh, cancer, along with the help of a Cancer Care Social Worker to help facilitate the group. Uh, we currently offer a telephone support group for people who are diagnosed with brain cancers, and we also have an online caregiver support group. Sharing information and understanding with others in similar, who have similar situations, can be a powerful experience. And group members can offer encouragement and a sense of community that can provide you with additional support and additional guidance. Uh, these connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. As we've learned from today's program and our speakers, there's a lot of information to digest and make sense of. Our social workers can help you understand what this all means for you and your family Uh, A cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions that you might want to ask and uh, and help you get the information that you need. So please remember that you're not alone. Cancer care services are here to help you. Um, Please contact us at 800-813-HOPE, that's 800-813-4673, or log on to our website, which is www.cancercare.org. O-R-G for more information about our oncology social work support. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to talk today.
1: Carolyn? Uh, thank you so much, um, Andrew. That was wonderful. Thank you, excellent. And, um, and we do hope you'll take advantage of all these services and all the information you've learned. And now we have time for questions. We actually have a lot of time for questions, really a credit to our speakers to allow that time. And so actually um, I'm going to uh, start to kind of um, go through the questions and please um, I will first ask Crystal, actually, to kind of um, tell you how to ask questions. People are already posting questions. That's, sorry about that, Crystal, but some of you don't know how to post questions, so Crystal will tell you what to do in terms of posting questions, thank you, or asking questions,
0: thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, star and then one.
1: Um, okay, so we do have a question as one of our online participants. This is for Dr. Wong. Um, what is the 2019 FDA review Dr. Wong brought up early?
3: Oh, uh, I think uh, this is a potential um, upcoming uh drug in other words uh this is a drug that is uh uh fought us along in the clinical trial process and um uh, and uh this may come up for FDA review and with that uh i think um uh the patient the community the glioblastoma community uh may want to keep your eyes and ears open uh about this um this potential FDA approval process, and I would urge patients to uh, go to uh, Bethesda or Rockville, uh, Maryland, to uh, participate in this forum, because uh, this is an open forum that patients can participate in order to see how this process goes. And as I said before, um, these government agencies actually works for you, and um, and uh, and uh, it is very, very important for uh, uh, glioblastoma patients uh, to uh, tell uh, uh, the FDA and also Medicare about their experience with their treatments. And compared to uh, other disease sites, so compared to our, to my colleagues in lung cancer or breast cancer, they have 20 drugs to choose from, whereas our, our uh, the community we only have a limited number of drugs. So I think this is a very, very important process that patients should take an active role in.
1: Thank you. Um and um we have another question um for um for you Dr. Wong in terms of um Uh, he'd love to, I'd love to hear more about the results, um, electric field treatment benefits and side effects, and is this something that is being also being a for other kinds of cancers?
3: Yeah. Um, so the electric field um, um, uh, has been approved for newly diagnosed patients with glioblastoma since 2015, and this is uh, a... Uh, they uh, actually a device in which uh, patients um, uh, need to shave their head, and they have to apply these arrays to their scalp. Uh, they carry a uh, a machine that uh, emits uh, electric fields, um, and it has been shown that uh, the electric fields interferes with the tumor cells as they are dividing. Now, uh, it has been shown in randomized phase three clinical trials. That um, patients who use electric field plus temozolomide after radiation, uh, they have uh, uh, improved survival and also progression-free survival, and um, and um, and this is um, and uh, and there is a, a benefit uh, for gli- for the glioblast for the glioblastoma population. Now there are side effects, and with every therapy uh, that, uh, with every treatment, there's uh, there's certainly side effects. And uh, but the side effects are tolerable uh, because it primarily involves uh, 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 redness and scalp irritation. Um, so uh it does not have systemic side effects. It doesn't have side effects that uh cause bone marrow suppression or um changes in white blood cell counts or platelets and um but there are side effects on on, on the scalp.
1: Thank you. Um and um actually a question for Doctor um Um Bruce, um there has been a lot of talk recently about using the poliovirus to treat GBM. Is your facility currently participating in the trials and if so, what is your take on the treatment?
2: Well, um it's a a very promising concept. Uh I think that um we don't really know how well it's working yet. I think the there were some very preliminary reports that got people very excited. But like uh anything else it, it needs to really be be tested fully in a in a an expanded clinical trial much much of the way that that Dr Wong is talking about some of the other uh drugs that have been done so I think nobody really knows yet uh about the 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 final results it's still very much in a testing phase uh it's a concept that seems to make uh make sense but uh I think we just don't know the the uh, long-term story yet, but we probably will know soon as as I know that testing is being done.
1: Um, and then another question, um, actually, for, um, for Dr. Bruce, um, from our online participants. Um, what tests can be taken by the family members to determine what their risk of developing the same tumor and if the family has a syndrome DNA?
2: Um, if I mean there are some very rare types of uh of genetic uh diseases that ha- that are associated with cleoblastone, but they're extremely rare. And if you have one of those, the 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 way to deal with that is to see a genetic counselor. There are some genetic counselors out there who um will first of all uh test for sure whether whether you have that uh genetic trait and uh if you do i mean these are these are very rare syndromes by the way, like neurofibromatosis or turcote syndrome or li fromini syndrome they're they're as I say they're extremely rare and if you have one of those, I would say see a genetic counselor and then they would advise who in the family needs to get tested and uh and what to do in terms of screening going forward
1: and is that a common question that people ask in terms of just in general, I guess I know in many of our calls people ask about the genetic aspect of their particular cancer. Is that something that is a frequently asked question that people ask?
2: Yes, I mean I think the the vast majority of of glioblastomas are not uh, familial. That, in other words, they don't occur in families, except for those very rare genetic syndromes. As I said, Turco syndrome and. Uh, Lee-Frameney syndrome, but they're they're very rare. So the average person, if someone in your family has a glioblastoma, there there's no real reason to think that other family members will get that as well.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Um, these are really great questions. I have to say these are really one of the questions we've had in the past. So this audience is remarkable, let me tell you. Um, um, well, here's a question um, I'm for Dr. Wong. Um why don't we routinely measure the MGMT methylation rate? And if you could explain that. I'm not quite sure what that all means. If you could explain that to the audience as well, Dr. Wong.
3: Sure. Sure. Uh, The MGMT stands for um, O6-methylguanine-methyltransferase. And it is a repair enzyme that repairs the damage done by alkylating chemotherapies. And these alkylating chemotherapies include temozolomide, it include another drug called lomastine, and another drug called carmastine. And um, as we treat uh, patients with glioblastoma, we certainly don't want these repair enzymes to be activated in the tumor cells because what happens is that uh, we give the chemotherapy uh, and the purpose of the chemotherapy is, is to damage the tumor cells and we want um, the enzyme not to be present. Now, the enzyme is expressed uh, when uh, in ex- expressed uh, by transcription from the DNA of the tumor cells. Now, the the process of expression can be turned off by a process called methylation. So, w- so in other words, when the MGMT is methylated, that means the en- the repair enzyme is turned off. That is a good thing. When the M- when the um, when the MGMT is unmethylated, that means uh, the repair enzyme is turned on, and that is a not so good thing. So. Um, it is not something that we can switch on and off uh, as physicians. Uh, there's no medication that we know of that can uh, switch on and off. Um, so, uh, but we can determine whether or not uh, the MGMT is on or off and give some prognostic information. Now this is usually done in um, in academic institutions, uh and uh some institution does this, some institution uh, does not, but interestingly, um uh, uh insurance companies and uh, and Medicare does not cover uh this type of testing. But certainly uh at academic places um, or at tertiary care hospitals, uh we all uh uh, we can all request it to be done. So that's a nutshell about what MGMT means.
1: Yes, most in, in, that's a, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks for the question and thank you for addressing it. Um, um, and do you want to add anything to that, Dr. Bruce?
2: Or? No, I, I think that's that's a pretty comprehensive view, but I think it's uh, it's one of those markers that when that's, that's easy to measure and it's measured most of the time in, in these tumors. And uh, after you have that marker measured, your doctor can tell you whether you're in the better category uh, for someone who's likely to respond to the chemotherapy.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And my question for you, um, uh, uh, Dr. Bruce. Um, what about um, proton beam radiation versus IMRT radiation for glio patients? And if you could
2: explain each of those, thank you. Yes. Yeah, so there, there are different, you know, the, there are different types of radiation that are out there. You know, proton beam is a type of radiation that literally uses protons, uh, which are positively charged particles. I, I don't think it, the details of that are that uh, critical, but protons um, are a different type of of radiation compared to the more common type of radiation, which we know as uh, external beam radiation uh, or IMRT, which is uh, intensity modulated radiation. Intensity modulated radiation therapy is a form of of external beam or standard radiation that uh, allows you to give a higher dose of the radiation to the tumor uh, while minimizing the amount of radiation that the rest of the brain get. So it's um, uh, uh, similar to stereotactic radiation in that it's a way to concentrate the, the, the radiation so that the tumor gets the bulk of the radiation and the rest of the brain gets less of it. Um, proton beam therapy is very similar to uh, standard uh, electron or uh, external radiation um, in that it's uh, these are the the particles in the radiation that are designed to damage tumors and um so they they work in a in a similar fashion the idea behind um proton uh beams is that they're they uh have different rates of how they penetrate into the brain or into the tumor so their um their ability to kill tumor cells as opposed to damage normal tissue is perhaps a little different um, because so many more people have had external beam radiation compared to people with proton beam, it's not really clear if one is better than the other. Uh, for for the most part, the, the sort of consensus is that they seem to be relatively similar, and um, they both require uh, you know about 30 treatments. So the the investment in, in time and effort is about the same. But uh, as of right now, there's there's, um, no clear evidence that proton beam therapy is better than the the standard uh, external beam therapy that most people get.
1: Thank you. Um, And um, we have um, a question from another online participant. Um, This one is for Dr. Wong. What is the 2019 FDA review Dr. Wong brought up early?
3: Oh, uh, this is a potential review. Um, This is a review that may come on later this year. Uh, This may be a potential review, so uh, I was just uh, uh, alluding to uh, some of the newer drugs that are coming into the picture.
1: And also if you Dr. Wong, could you elaborate further on EPT-414 where the, the clinical trials encouraging?
3: Yeah. Uh so this is a uh, a monoclonal antibody. Um, uh this is not a drug. This is an antibody. This is a biologic drug in which uh the target is um is what we call epidermal growth factor receptor in which uh patients with Uh, in which glioblastomas can have a lot of uh, epidermal growth factor uh, receptors. And in fact, uh, there is a class of um, glioblastomas that have uh, uh, overexpression of epidermal growth factor receptor, and we can use that to specifically target the tumor cells using uh, the monoclonal antibody. Now, the monoclonal antibody is... uh, is um, uh, conjugated to a um, to a toxin, and once uh, once, uh, the to- once the once the monoclonal antibody latches onto tumor cell, uh, the uh, the antibody as well as the toxin would be internalized, and uh, that and the toxin specifically targets uh, the machinery, the cell machinery that makes. Uh, the cell to divide, and that's the idea behind it. and um, And there was a trial in Europe uh, uh, that has that compare uh, this debetux or abt four fourteen with temozolomide versus temozolomide alone that shows some improvements in survival. There is another trial uh, that is ongoing right now um, that is. Um, uh, that that data is still being collected, and hopefully by the end of this year we will know uh, whether or not uh, uh, the result is favorable. If it's favorable, it may go for FDA review. So, um, so uh, if it does, then uh, that then um, then there could be another uh, treatment available for the uh, glioblastoma population.
1: And could you say more about the role of the um of of family and, and, and people living with group glass with the FDA approval process?
3: Sure. Um so in two thousand and eleven I was in in the uh FDA panel um meeting and uh basically uh what the F- whenever uh, there's uh, a new treatment coming up for F D A review um the Fda will do their own internal review as well as they may assemble a panel of experts throughout the country to convene on one day um, in Bethesda or rockville and then um, and then um, and then uh, the panel which is independent from the fDA would listen to the data presented um, the clinical trial data, as well as all the uh, preclinical and the phase one data, as well as phase two and phase three data. And the panel consists of about 20 uh, individuals, uh, oncologists, radiologists, biostatisticians, who would look at the data and use their expertise to determine whether or not uh, it is something that is worthwhile. For um, for um, for the patient. So uh, so in 2011, uh, I was part of the group uh, presenting data, and uh, and at the end of the review, there is a um, period, a patient impact um, period, in which uh, patients with the disease or uh, family members who have their um, members of the family affected by the disease can present their uh, stories uh, to the FDA panel. And that was a very, very uh, eye-opening experience. And, uh, and it is open to the public. Uh, 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 any patient can register for that and present their story. So, um, so um, and uh, FDA, Medicare, these are federal agencies that we pay taxes for, and uh, they work for us. They work for you. Um, uh, if you have a glioblastoma, and I think you should be aware of this and um, and participate if you can. Excellent.
1: Thank you. And Dr. Bruce, do you want to comment on this? But how do people find out about it, or how do they know what? How would they? How the average person find out that they could participate? Or? Uh,
2: well, I think Dr. Wong may maybe have more information about that. I'm not really sure. To be honest with mm-hmm. you um i think
3: yeah i think uh i think some of the patient support um uh, uh organizations uh may may hear about this um and also uh the fda website www.fda.gov uh may have information about uh these these upcoming meetings
1: so actually, that's a good point. And after the um, program, you'll all be getting an evaluation. But the evaluation is an evaluation it's true of the program. But also, we include all the resources that we've mentioned during the program itself. So all, all any any of the information that's been given out in terms of websites to visit. And I do want to mention the brain tumor organizations that have partnered on today's program. Since so they would be a wonderful place also to contact if you're interested in, in this, or they have other re- many other resources as well. So there is the Brain Tumor Foundation, you'll get that, their information as well. There's N Brain Cancer Initiative, um the Chris Elliott Fund. Um there is um, the National Brain Tumor Society. Um so those are um three specific brain tumor organizations um that um um and there, and the American um I'm so sorry, the American Brain Tumor Association, those are four specific organizations. We will send you the links to them, their name, um, any other names that I've possibly left out that are important to include as well, um, so that you can, you know, let them know that you have that interest um and clearly the uh, their important their important role that you each play is is important as well. Um and um no, we have another question here. Um and this one is for um for Doctor Um please, just pull up here. Um, um the the question is my sister and brother both diagnosed with glioblastoma. How rare is it to have more than two in a family? I'd say
2: that's extremely rare. Um, As I say, there are are a couple of uh, reports of of, of, uh, families where this occurs. It's extremely rare. I know there was a group working out, uh, I believe it was Case Western. Um, There was somebody there, it might have been Johns Hopkins, I actually don't recall. They were trying to collect uh, groups of families that had this and uh they were trying to do some analysis of it, but it's it's ex- extremely rare
1: okay. and there is another question for you um so um so it's so this is like an interesting question? I don't think anyone's ever asked it on these programs before, perhaps they've asked it somewhere else, but is there a method rather than um killing the tumor just slowing it enough for the immune immune system to eliminate it?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a great reason. question. Uh, and it is something that uh, that we and many other researchers are working on. And it there's a there's a class of drugs that are called differentiating agents. And what that means is that you know tumor cells, brain tumor cells, gliomas start out as normal glial cells, which is the common type of brain cell and from those normal cells they turn into uh into tumors and this ability to do that is something called de-differentiation meaning you're going from a normal cell to an abnormal one and there are a number of of drugs out there that target that and what they try to do is take the tumor cells that are that are growing that are that are uh dividing and growing and and de differentiate them so that they become more like a normal cell. So you may not necessarily uh kill the tumor cell and and um um and but but what the idea is to is to keep it from growing. And so maybe um it's a way of of keeping the tumor from growing so you don't necessarily you're not cured of the tumor but these drugs stop the tumor from growing by differentiating them and making them more like normal uh brain tumor cells or more like uh, normal brain cells so that they don't act like tumor cells and the if those drugs are successful you probably would have to take them for a, for a long period of time um but uh they they uh, don't necessarily kill tumor cells they often tend to have a a much better uh, safety profile. In other words, they they tend to have less side effects because they're not not, uh, killing any cells that are are dividing, which is why most of the time you get sick from chemotherapy is because the the chemotherapy kills other normal cells in your body that are are dividing. But uh, de-differentiating agents are out there. They're being tested and would be a good strategy for controlling uh, glioblastoma if they become effective.
1: And um uh another one other question which is an interesting question as well. Um I V G G M B seven plus years, chemo plus rad twice, free cancer currently, M G M T negative, what would work for me? Is that is that anything you could comment on, Doctor Bruce in terms of Question. Well, I I think
2: though, of- I think uh, I think that is, that's a very unique background and and, and profile and I think it's hard to to uh, generalize about that. I, I would say um the the best thing uh for that person to do is to uh see their brain tumor specialist uh if if and if they don't have one to find one specifically because there's no simple answer to that and i think mostly at this stage you're looking at the possibility of clinical trials which are which are always a good idea um but which one is very specific for you would would really involve looking at all aspects of of your treatment and your tumor to date um uh you know i don't i don't think we can tell just from the a phone call right now
1: excellent so definitely um please take that question it's an excellent question to ask your healthcare team um, specifically, someone who specializes in the treatment of glioblastoma. Um, and I, I would say that's true for everyone, even those who've asked questions today. Whatever the answers you've gotten, really, please take them back to treating health searching. That's really important. Um, so, a question for Dr. Wong um, What is the effectiveness of implanted radiation seeds?
3: Um, okay. So, um, uh, implanted radiation seeds, uh, um, I think. Um, has been in use um uh at various places uh many many years ago um and I think um uh it has been shown that um uh, uh sometimes the radiation may be a little bit too much and uh, patients uh can develop uh radiation necrosis so um and that has been reported uh as best as i know uh but if um, if a patient is offered this treatment i think um and i think the best thing to do is uh to speak to the uh treatment team and um and find out the rationale and also um uh, listen to uh your doctors uh describe what are the potential side effects and if you want to have another opinion uh get a second opinion because um whether or not you are the right patient to get this type of therapy really requires an in-depth look at your medical records, uh, what has been done before, what are your uh, what are the genetic characteristics of your tumor, uh, as well as uh, what other options are available. So uh, it's a risk-benefit analysis um, that uh, may it it may be worthwhile for you uh, to seek a second opinion.
1: Excellent. Um, and um, we have, um, this will be our last question, and I'm going to give this question both to um, Dr. Bruce and Dr. Wong. So, Dr. Bruce, if you'd start with it. Why isn't MRI in the brain not a common physical test like some other cancers or diseases like breast, colon, et cetera?
2: I'm sorry, can you can you repeat that? Oh, yes.
1: Why isn't MRI of the brain not a common physical test like some other cancers or diseases like breast, colon, etc.?
2: Uh, sorry, the question: Why is it not a common test for for glioblastoma? Is that the question?
1: Yes, I, 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 probably for screening and also um, um, and also a, co- a common physical test. I, well, I it's
2: even, a, it it is the primary test that. That glioblastomas are diagnosed. Pretty much everybody that has a glioblastoma has an MRI scan to diagnose it. Um, the the problem with using it as a screening, like why wouldn't everybody get uh, a, a, an MRI scan like once a year? Probably the, the the main problem is is it's it's not a very good cost-effective way to screen tumors because, you know, glioblastomas are not that common, and I I think probably it's hard to justify the The cost of an MRI scan as a as a screening tool, Um, but just to add to that, um, there there's some actually very interesting work being done on uh, uh, blood tests that may be available at some point in the future, where you could get a blood test screening, where um, uh, once a year your your blood is sampled and it. You can screen for not only glioblastoma, but a number of different types of of cancers. That testing is not here yet, but there's some very interesting work that's being done, uh, and it may be in our lifetime that we'll be able to see a time where you go for that kind of screening from a blood test. Uh, Probably, getting back to the original question, an MRI scan is probably just too too, uh, expensive to be an effective tool for uh, screening uh, brain cancer.
1: Excellent, but is actually used um, initially. and it is, it is used when someone is symptomatic or there's something happening then. They,
2: yes. The yes. Does have something like
1: something.
2: Right, yes. Everybody who's suspected of having a brain tumor would would likely get an MRI scan.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Wong, do you want to comment further? Or?
2: Sure. Um,
3: so when we deal with the brain, we typically use uh, MRI scans rather than CAT scans. However, uh, uh, my colleagues, uh, when outside of the brains, uh, they typically use CAT scans, probably because uh, the tissue's properties are a little bit different. There's another um, uh, radi- radiologic uh, modality, and that is a PET scan. So a PET scan is very good in picking up uh, tumors in the body, but it's not so good in in terms of picking up tumors in the brain, primarily because uh, the PET scan uses a radioactive sugar and the brain basically uses a lot of sugar. So the resolution is not as good. So we primarily use MRI scan to detect uh, and monitor brain tumors.
1: Well, I have to say this has been a remarkable call. I I honestly want to thank all of our participants who have asked such really amazing questions, I I really must say, and our speakers, who I want to thank them, who have been extraordinary in addressing the questions and in their presentations as well. This has been an extraordinary call. I, I, I must say in all the years we've offered these calls, um, I don't think we've ever had such a very informed, also, audience in terms of the questions you've asked. So thank you all. Um, I do want to remind all of you that this is, of course, a one-hour program. And so that in planning a program like this, of course, um, well, I know there are many more questions in queue and so many more questions you'd like to ask. So, And, and if you haven't had your questions answered, we will, at the end, give you the resources um, to contact. But I do want to just mention one that i always give out to people um is the national cancer institute um and they both have information about clinical trials as well as standard treatments um they have an 800 number and a website and you'll be getting all of that in your evaluations um from us um and i think um for the um and their website is www.cancer.gov Um, And that's just a wonderful resource for all of you have. They have a live chat feature that's really nice for people internationally as well as in the United States who really prefer to use the Internet. And they have an 800 number, 1-800-422-6237. Again, you'll get those numbers. I do want to mention that we have a number of programs coming up that might be of interest to to you, to all of you. We have one uh, called Caregiving for Your Loved One with Cancer. Uh, with brain tumor, that would be a program for the people on the call who are caregivers or for people who are caregivers to themselves or would like to know more about what caregivers need to do and what how some of their challenges and opportunities are as well. And I also we have a program that's um, different but actually might be uh, relevant to people on the call. It's managing eye and vision changes related to cancer treatments. So that um, that's a general call with uh, a lot of ophthalmologists, um, um, and I think it might, and an oncologist as well, but it might be an interesting call for, And if you are having any uh, visual issues um, that you might like some help with, that you have discussed with your, perhaps with your treating healthcare team, and they, and they would think this might be helpful to you to um, participate in this one as well. Also, we do have an app that's featured on our website. It's a meditation relaxation app. Some of you find it helpful. It's free, so I, I encourage that as well. But most importantly, I think, as Mr. Chester had said, we don't want anyone to leave this call feeling that you're alone. We want you to now know that you're part of a community of support. We're here for you. You can call us anytime. We're here to help you. And um, I, again, appreciate your participation on the call, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.